0: delighted to be able to speak to you about Christianity and about Jesus Christ and how somebody with my background could be used by the Lord to advance the kingdom. And so this is wonderful that you're studying this and, and having a class on contemporary religions. And so I hope what I give you today will be insightful as you go through contemporary religions and see effectively how Christianity carves itself out, distinguishes itself from other faiths. Let me give you a brief introduction, first of all, about Christianity and Jesus Christ. About 2,000 years ago, in a little town of Bethlehem, which would be no more than effectively a truck stop, the most important event in the history of the world took place. And in that little truck stop of a town, God sent, effectively, God himself, uh, his son, Jesus Christ, to come to this world. Man fully becoming God and coming incarnate in flesh to this world for the purpose of saving this world from itself. And the world would never be the same from that event 2,000 years ago. And so from that humble beginning in a stable, God would send hope and light into a world full of darkness. And the hope and light would come through the heart's of Christians, those who accepted Jesus Christ. And so, in the three years of his public ministry, and that's what Jesus did, he had a very simple, humble life, except for the last three years, from the age of about 30 to 33, he he engaged in a humble ministry, and, and as he did that, Jesus reached out primarily to the Jewish people, to tell the Jewish people that he was the Messiah. And this becomes a critical aspect of understanding Christianity. Christianity has its roots in Judaism. 95% of what we stand for as Christians comes from our Judaic background. And so you need to understand that everything about Jesus was prophesied uh, through the scriptures. uh, in, In hundreds of prophecies that I'll speak to you about. And so God had commanded that his people, the chosen people, the Jewish people, atone for their sins once a year. On the day of atonement. Well, this went on for for thousand years, for 11, 1200 years, and what was readily uh, apparent is that using animals, animal sacrifice, had to uh, require atonement every year. And so, really, sins weren't, be, weren't being forgiven to the Jewish people, they were being covered up. And so, God ultimately made the determination that once and for all, the perfect sacrifice. The human God sacrifice would be made through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. And so you see that we owe our background to the Jewish people. Uh, and it becomes the completed promise of God to Abraham, the first Jew, the first chosen man, uh, as God promised Abraham he would do this. And so what I would say to you is that no other major religious movement had as its leader someone who said they were God themselves. Um, And so when you think about the impact of Christianity, whether you're a Christian or not, I would submit to you that you look at the uh, plethora of orphanages, hospitals, uh, the outreach to the poor across the world that has been done by Christianity that has not been done by any other major religious movement. Uh, And so I wanted to give you that as a brief start to understanding uh, how Christianity works, who is our leader. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a background about me, uh, because I think it's insightful to you to see how someone who is not a minister, who is not a holy guy, who is just a regular guy, remember I spent my life as a lawyer cross-examining people in court, uh, and how somebody with that background can somehow, in our faith, be used by God, and this is something that's very unusual that you probably are not going to be able to see in other religions. And so, I come from a family uh, of pastors. My grandfather uh, was a minister and a missionary. He came to the United States at the turn of the last century. Uh, My father uh, was a minister, and ministered in our uh, family church, which is about 125 people, ministered for 55 years. Uh, And so these were humble, holy men. Uh, And, uh, in fact, if I were to give you an insight into my father, my father ministered for 55 years, and he never got a salary. He accepted whatever was passed around in an offering plate. Now, I understand what that's like. Here he had a wife, he had two children, and he didn't get a salary. All he took was what came through an offering plate, and that was from a relatively poor church of 125 people. And so what that meant was, is that we led a very, very simple life. Uh, in fact, I always thought that we were middle class, and Professor, I didn't realize I wasn't middle class until I went to college, and then I realized, no, you're lower class. It was kind of a slap in the face because I always considered myself middle class and my parents had done such a wonderful job like that. But, just think about growing up in this kind of a setup. My parents lived in what effectively was a one-family home, but they had converted it into a two-family home. What did that mean? That, mean on the, that meant that on the first floor, my parents slept in the dining room, my sister slept in the one-bedroom, and I slept, until I was 18 years old, in the kitchen. Uh, and so you understand the sacrifices that my family made so that my father could rent out the second floor of the house uh, and serve in a church in which he didn't make really any money. And so every aspect of my life growing up was in church. We didn't have any friends that were outside of church friends. Every part of what we did was church. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, you know, my father early on in a small church recognized that he needed uh, someone to play the organ in church. but he didn't have talented people to play in a church of that size And so he asked God to give one of his two children enough talent so that they could wind up playing the organ in church. And God answered that prayer of a humble man. I wound up being the church organist for 40 years. Uh, And amazingly, my sister also was blessed with with talent. To this day, she is still a church organist in another uh, church in Pennsylvania. And so the thing is, people say to me, well, I don't understand it with your background. How did you not become a minister? Well, it's very simple. If you live in a kitchen, you sleep in a kitchen until you're 18 years old, you're going to look for every possible venue to get out of the kitchen. All right? You understand what it's like. And then I, I wanted to make money. I wanted to get out and have a bigger house. I wanted to have my own bedroom. I mean, it sounds as funny as it is. That's exactly what it is. And so for me, I focused on going to law school. And so uh, God opened doors for me. I went to Rutgers University. Uh, I had a bachelor's degree in economics. And then when I came out, uh, I I went to Seton Hall Law School and graduated with my law degree. Uh, And so for the next 35 years or so after I came out, I focused my efforts on the practice of law. And developing what we call a boutique practice, meaning, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, the idea in law is to specialize in such a specialized area that people from all over the country will look for you to represent them. corporations, will look for you. Well, I repre- my, my specialty was, was in representing large Fortune 500 companies who would have enormous real estate tax bills. It would pay an incredible amount of real estate taxes. So, at the same time, I represented General Motors, I represented Ford Motor Company, I represented all the Anchor department stores, I represented most of the major walls, I represented Anheuser-Busch, I represented most of the major industrialists. Uh, and, and, and so, uh, it was a specialty that God blessed and, and developed, uh, and uh, really, the practice grew, it got to be nationally recognized, uh, and, and so my life moved on. I was in a support capacity, understanding what that meant. I still played the organ in church. But I wasn't what we would call a frontline worker for God. Why? The why is I didn't consider myself as holy as my father or my grandfather. I didn't. I wasn't. I was a lawyer. I ripped people apart in court. Uh, That's what I did. I paid a lot of money to do that, by a lot of big companies. And so I didn't feel that I was worthy in that capacity. And so now as my father is dying and we're now uh, moving and migrating to Naples, Florida, uh, it comes down to the the early part of 2000, 2001, 2002, and and I'm trying to redefine myself spiritually. Where am I going to go? What is it that I'm going to do? Uh, I'm not going to be affiliated with my father's church any longer. What's going to happen? And as I'm going through this process, as I'm going through this process, one day I go go to uh, this large church, 45 minutes before it starts. Uh, It's empty. There's 2,000 seats. There's nobody in that church. It's dark, and I'm sitting there with my wife, halfway down in the back, just kind of contemplating about what I'm going to be doing with the rest of my life. This is now about 13, 14 years ago. Uh, And with that, a woman comes in about my age then, which would have been in the early 50s. She comes in, and with her, she uh, comes in a 16-year-old handicapped teenage girl, mentally handicapped. And I see this, and immediately I am convicted because I have a son of that same age who is healthy and intelligent. Uh, And have I really ever thanked God for that gift and that blessing. And I recognize I hadn't, I hadn't I had taken it for granted. And now this woman comes in and she proceeds to process down this dark church with 2,000 empty seats and she proceeds to sit immediately behind me. And with that, another person comes over in this darkened church and says to this lady, I wanna welcome you to our church. We have Sunday school for handicapped children, special needs children, my own son is special needs, And I want to welcome you uh, to our church. And with that, this woman says, oh, yes, my daughter is a devout Christian. And with that, this handicapped girl says in a very clear voice, oh, yes, I love Jesus. He's my personal Savior. Now, when the words came out of her mouth, all I can tell you is that God took a knife to my heart. And plunged it. And I distinctly heard these words. You see, you can speak in courtrooms all over America, and I never once heard you publicly say those words about me. Okay, you're right. I wasn't up front. I wasn't in the front seat. I was in a support position. And so I knew from that time forward, I knew in that time forward, that God wanted me to move in a different area. So I started asking God, what do you want me to do? Where? How am I supposed to do it? I, I explored uh, walking away from the practice of law. Uh, I explored uh, making myself available to lead large charitable organizations. And none of that seemed to come, come to fruition. And really, after a couple of years, one, one day I moved into Port Royal, down in downtown Naples. And one day, a guy saw me at the Port Royal Club And he said, hey, you go to church with me. How about you and me starting a Bible study in Port Royal? Now, normally, if somebody would have said that to me five or six years before, I would have used church speak back to them, which is this. Let me pray about it. Okay? If you go to church, you know, that's perfect perfect church speak. Let me pray about it, which is like, "Mm, not now. Not really now. But I'll pray about it. I really won't do it, but I'll put you off. Uh, But instead, when he said, how about you and me starting a Bible study, I said, yes, yes, immediately. And so what happened? So in my house, I, I, I sent out 250 postcards to everybody in the neighborhoods around my house in Port Royal. And I'm proud to tell you, not one person came. Not one person came. And what did I recognize? I recognized this. That if this Bible study was going to succeed, it wasn't going to succeed because of me. Because if it were me, I was going to wreck it. But if it were going to succeed, it was going to succeed because God wanted to succeed, and he would handle it. So, I started with just five guys in the house. One of those guys is here today. uh, And this guy will tell you, uh, you if you asked him afterwards that when I asked him Carlo, I'd like you to come to the house for a Bible study, that his first reaction was, oh, no, he's not going to ask you to start a Bible study with him. Uh, He went home and told his wife and said, you know, John asked me to come to his house for a Bible study, and you know how John is. You can't say no to John. So I'll go, but I'll just sleep, sneak away after a while. You won't even recognize it. Well, I'm proud to tell you that that guy some nine and a half years later, is now with one of my right-hand people that helps me administer 200 men, 200 men that come every Monday morning from every possible church. And so here's the thing. God grew it. God prospered. Yes, it's on the radio station. Yes, I'm now on over 400 radio stations every weekend, every part of it. If you want to see of what we're doing As you leave, you can pick up one of these green cards that tells you about our websites and about the radio stations, and I hope you'll do that. But the point of this is, it wasn't about me, it was about God, uh, and and how I had to learn to submit. And the answer, really, the the amazing thing about Christianity is that God will take the most simple, humble people. I'm not a minister. I'm not a theologian. I've never gone to seminary. But God... Has determined that for some reason, whatever gifts that he has given to me resonate to people who need to hear about it, and that's that's what differentiates Christianity. Now, I'm going to tell you something else about what I believe about Christianity, and that's this. And you're not going to hear this from a lot of churches, but I truly believe this: God does not care about your religious denomination. You understand that? I don't care if you're a Presbyterian or a Lutheran, or a Methodist, or a Pentecostal, or a Roman Catholic. All of those individual denominations are no more than your horizontal relationship with other people as you worship. What God cares about is your vertical relationship. What is your vertical relationship? And your vertical relationship has absolutely nothing, nothing whatsoever to do uh, with the worship of God at all. And so let me, let me just now turn the page and focus on Jesus. Because you have a contemporary class on religion, and so it's, you know, it's, it's important to know, uh, what's the deal about Jesus? Well, uh, the question becomes, when you read the scripture, and all of the scriptures, really, all of it, uh, from Genesis right through to Revelation, speaks about Jesus. Some of it metaphorically, some symbolically, but all of it speaks about Jesus, Many, much of it prophetically. Uh, and so Jesus spoke, used the scriptures often to spoke about himself. And so what did Jesus say who he was? Well, Jesus made it very clear that he was the Son of God. Even at the time in his public ministry, when you read the New Testament, and if you if you get around to reading it, I would uh, offer up to you to read the Gospel of John uh, because it would be very insightful for you to see that. But Jesus refers there, for the first time ever in the history uh, of Judaism and what will become Christianity, he refers to God in a Hebrew word by calling him Abba, which effectively means Daddy. Nobody ever used that word before, to refer to Sovereign God. And so Jesus was demonstrating that there was some unique, special relationship that he had with Sovereign God, uh, with God the Father. Uh, And and it comes through so poignantly and and resonates so deeply when you study it. And so some of the things that I would point your attention to, and here's the thing. If you want to know about what Christianity is, about who Jesus is, you can't take somebody's word for it. You have to read it and study it and contemplate it. And that means this. Pick up a Bible and look at the New Testament and focus in on the Gospel of John because John was his closest friend. John traveled with him his his, his entire public life. John would live to the age of over 90 and John would give his life up effectively For Jesus. And here's one of the things to remember as you study this. You know that all of the eleven disciples, all of them, would be martyred for Christ. Now think about what that means as you study religion. Who would give up their life for a fake or a phony or a liar or a con man? These guys walked with him and slept there. And ate with him. And yet every single one of them would be there for the entire three-year ministry, would see him crucified, and then ultimately would see him rise up and be resurrected from the grave. They would see it. They would be eyewitnesses to it. And ultimately, they would give their lives for it. The fact that they would give their lives resonates about the very truthfulness of who Jesus was. And so Jesus made it very clear. He says he says at various points in Scripture uh, that, that he was God. At one point Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. He says that in John, Gospel of John, chapter five, verse forty-six. He says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, uh, and was glad. That was in John chapter eight, fifty six. And by the way, we've given the professor some of my backup material so that you can get this afterwards, and, and that'll be posted. Uh, that's been passed around. All right, great. Um, and and uh, uh, in so many ways, uh, Jesus constantly referred to himself uh, as God, as, as the one way to reach God. Uh, and he did it over and over and over again. In fact, he would cite scripture when he started his, his ministry. He would cite Isaiah which talked about the fact that the Messiah would come, it would be a special day. Jesus walked into the synagogue on the beginning of his ministry, opened Isaiah chapter 61, and read several verses from there indicating that that day had come. And so, Jesus didn't do this in a vacuum. Jesus didn't do it secretly. Jesus did it openly. Openly indicating who he was. And so, here's the thing. The impossibility of considering Jesus to be merely a good man is seen in the analysis of the fact that he claimed he was God. So either he was a madman or he was God. That's essentially where it's at. Because Jesus did this. And so when I hear people say, well, Jesus was a great prophet. Well, well, He claimed to be much more than a prophet. He claimed to be God himself. Uh, And so, uh, the fact that he tied himself back to descending from Abraham uh, and that this came right through the the very, very basis of of our our religion uh, resonates so much with me. Now, here's, here's the point that I want you to consider. And that's this. When you hear me speak about Christianity and about Jesus Christ... I want you to know that you don't have to understand that I'm relying on the Bible. I'm relying on the Bible. And I believe that the Bible is the revealed Word of God. Uh, I believe that the Bible is absolutely, totally uh, reliable, that you can depend on it. And if, in fact, you are a spiritual person, if, in fact, you are a Christian and even if you are a Jew you cannot begin to understand what God wants for your life unless you read the Bible because in the Bible God reveals his plan for you and so here's the fact the Bible is the roadmap to heaven for man and here's the other thing about understanding the Bible the Bible was written by 40 different authors on 3 different continents, in totally different cultures over 1600 years, in 66 different books in which nobody knew each other. And yet when you study it, you will find over and over and over again one consistent thread throughout the Bible, and that is this, that God wanted to have a relationship With humanity. And because he wanted that relationship, uh, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what you'll see. And so here's the thing. For us, God doesn't expect you to believe because he wants you to take a leap in the dark. That's nonsense. God doesn't do that to us. There's no such thing as a leap in the dark. God wants you to understand that there is a fundamental, solid body of evidence about who Jesus is, about the prophecies of the Bible, and about the fact that over 1,500 years, it was crystal clear that this was going to happen. And so one of the things that you can look at when you look at the Bible is you look and understand that archaeology is verified through the Bible. And I've studied this. And what we see now is archaeologists in the Middle East routinely use the Bible. Why? Because the Bible tells them where things are that they need to find. And so when they go back and use the Bible, they will find often find things that they had absolutely no idea about. There was a recent example of that within the last 10 years or so about the Pool of Bethsaida in Jerusalem, where no one believed that this pool exi- existed, even though it was very clearly written about in the Gospel of John. Well, when archaeologists followed the Gospel of John... And, and used it as a roadmap and dug down. Sure enough, what did they find? The pool of Bethsaida. All right? Even though it hadn't been seen in thousands of years. And so you see this over and over again. And, and here's the deal, folks. You can't take another book that purports to be 1,500, 2,000 years old. I don't care what book it is. You can't take that book and have that book be a roadmap to finding anything. There is no other book that allows you to do that. And so many of the locations uh, in the Bible that are written about by Luke, and Luke, as you know, wrote one of the Gospels. Luke was a doctor, a physician, a very educated man, and Luke was a first-rate historian. First-rate historian. Uh, And what they have found, uh, and, and this is done through, through just regular studies, historical studies of what Luke wrote about, they found that Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 islands without a single error. Uh, He is considered to be one of the truly great historians in the history of the world. Uh, And it's interesting, uh, when you read the Gospel of, of Luke, and you hear how he begins his discussion in Luke chapter 1, you understand exactly why his writings and his history is so great. And if I could just read to you this opening paragraph of the Gospel of Luke. It lets you know exactly what kind of historian Luke is. That's why we say the Bible is reliable. Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up... "...an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word." You understand? He's getting first-hand evidence from eyewitnesses, people who were alive, who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus be crucified. And Luke, the historian, is interviewing them and writing down uh, their statements. And then he says, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good uh, to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. What does that mean? It means that he had a student, a Roman, Theophilus, who was being brought along in Christianity, and Luke the historian had gone back and interviewed those people who had a first-hand account. Who saw it? What did you see? And he writes about that. And that's why the Gospels are reliable. And I will say something else to you. Uh, And and you folks are are bright college students, and, and, and you know that you're supposed to read and test the evidence. Here's the thing. You read these The gospel accounts about Jesus, and you see the fact that they talk about the fact that there were eyewitness accounts, and they talk about the eyewitness accounts. Don't you realize that at the time that these were being written, that there were people alive who could have disputed it? What do I mean by that? I mean this: if I saw the letter written by Luke and he would say X, Y, and Z about Jesus, and I would say he's a liar, that didn't happen. That Jesus didn't resurrect from from the grave. You would see accounts written about that, denigrating these writings. And you don't see a single written narrative in which you'll see people denigrating what these historical records speak about in the Gospels. And so this is an important thing for you to understand as you come to terms with who Jesus Christ is and what Christianity is, and why the Bible is so reliable. And here's the other thing, let's look at the source texts. You're intelligent people, let's look at the source text. And so when when, uh, historians look to see the veracity of source texts, what they often do is they look to see when is the first text about somebody first available. And, And when you study Plato and Aristotle, uh, and some of the great Roman writers, you will find that they have maybe four or five treatises that are available that relate to these writings, but most of them show up seven, eight 800, 900 years after the fact. Meaning so that if Plato was around uh, alive in the year 800, 900 B.C., well, they might have a document that speaks about Plato, but it would only be dated maybe 800 years later. And they might only have two or three. Well, here's the thing about the Bible. There are thousands, I repeat, there are thousands of manuscripts dating back to within about 100 to 200 years of when the events took place. Thousands. The last count I saw that there was something like 18,000 original manuscripts written in Greek. Hebrew, or Aramaic, that would have been written between probably the year 100 and about the year uh, 250, meaning all written as original manuscripts within 200 years of Jesus' life. In fact, they've recently recovered one that was written about uh, 50 years from Jesus' life. And so what does it mean? Most recently, here's one for you. Most recently, the question is, well, what about the veracity of the Old Testament? What do you have supporting that? Well, uh, in terms of the Old Testament, uh, there was the Book of Isaiah, and the uh, the oldest book of Isaiah that they had in a transcript form, uh, written in Hebrew and Aramaic, dated to the year 900. You got that? That was the oldest. Well, in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a cave in the Middle East And when they opened the Dead Sea Scrolls, what did they find? They found the entire book of Isaiah written a thousand years before the the earliest transcript that they had. Meaning what? Meaning that this book of Isaiah was written about 100 B.C. And guess what? They compared that transcript to the previous transcript and found that it was 99.5% consistent with the first transcript. Meaning, it's accurate. It's reliable. It wasn't made up. It had historical veracity. It had substance. And so this becomes an important point for you as you understand the importance of our faith and who Jesus is, who he says he is. Uh, One of the other things that you need to know about is the fact that critics maintain that the gospel accounts are not reliable because some of the accounts differ factually. Well, actually, if you put the gospel accounts up next to each other, and you take into consideration that in any group of people, as you decide to talk about somebody, and each of you does it at a different period of time, everybody will have their own perceptions of how facts took place. But in terms of the critical facts, in terms of those things that are most reliable, here's the set of facts that resonate across the board uniformly through all the Gospels, without differentiation. That is that, one, Jesus was born of a virgin. Two, he was born in Bethlehem. He lived in Nazareth. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He performed miracles. He walked on water. He argued with the religious elite. He was handed over to the Romans, and he was crucified. He was buried in a tomb. He rose from the dead and appeared to more than 500 eyewitnesses. That's uniformly across the board in all four Gospels. Now you think about that when you recognize that the Gospels were written probably disparately of a period of some were written as as soon as about 8 or 9 years after Jesus was crucified, and the Gospel of John was probably written more like about 45 years after Jesus was crucified, and yet you see that consistency, that consistency in terms of the facts. Uh, And so two of the Gospels, uh, two of the Gospels, Matthew and John, were written by eyewitness apostles. The other two Uh, The other two were written by guys who knew the eyewitnesses, who interviewed the eyewitnesses, and spoke at length to the eyewitnesses. And so you understand that. There's also significant historical evidence, evidence that Jesus Christ existed. In fact, here's the point. If you talk to any historian today, they will tell you, anybody that's that's clear-minded and has done the research, Jesus was an actual historical figure. Jesus lived. Now, they may not recognize him as the Messiah, but they will recognize him as a historical figure. And I cite that in my writings to you, and the fact that a number of Roman writers recognize that. Now, Pliny talked about it. Tacitus talked about it. Uh, In fact, one of the accounts, Tacitus, talked about the fact that Nero persecuted and tortured the Christians. Nero, he wrote, Tacitus wrote that Christus, from whom the name of the group had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. How do you like that? So there it is, Roman testimony that Jesus lived, that Jesus walked, that Jesus died. Now, they're not Christians, they're not saying that he uh, was resurrected, but they confirmed the fact that Jesus existed. And so, you see over and over and over again, the, the evidence, the evidence is unbelievably uh, continuous. And so, when you study this, and you see this, uh, you, you recognize that clearly, God, God, preordained, preordained that Jesus Christ would come to this world. And, and one of the things that I, that I want to give you, that, that I would refer to you, is this. There are over 300 prophecies. 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. 300. And when we say prophecies, we don't say, you know, I think the sun's going to come up tomorrow. That's my prophecy. Well, that's not a prophecy. We're talking about things that would be so incredibly uh, uh, infinite. That for them to say it would take place, and it does take place, is confounding. And I've given some of them to you. The first one is, and this was written uh, hundreds of years before Jesus would be born, is that Jesus, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And I told you that Bethlehem was like a truck stop. Not Jerusalem, not a major international city, but Bethlehem of Judea, a truck stop. Uh, and that was written hundreds of years before there's a verse that said in the Bible, uh, in, in uh, Isaiah, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Of a virgin. How's that for going out in a limb? All right? Of a virgin. Uh, that he would come from the seed of Abraham. And in fact, when you trace the genealogy of Jesus, it's very clear that he comes, and the Bible does this. comes right out of the genealogy of Abraham. Uh, that the Messiah, as a child, would spend a season in Egypt. Now, why would the Jewish Messiah wind up spending a season in Egypt? Well, he would if when he was two years old, uh, the Jewish leadership decided that they would kill every infant two years or uh, old or younger, and that his family had to leave Bethlehem, leave Judea, and flee to Egypt in order to survive. And that's exactly what happened. Right? That's exactly what happened. It's also prophesied uh, in uh, Jeremiah... That at the time of the birth of the Messiah, there would be a massacre of children. Now think about that. A massacre of children. And what happened? At Jesus' birth, any any male child who was two years old or younger would be killed. Um, And so uh, there was a prophecy that Jesus would be rejected by his own. Again, that's in Psalms. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, that Jesus, the Messiah, would be a Nazarene. Not only would he be born in Bethlehem, but he would come from Nazareth. Nazareth was one, one, one level above a truck stop. And yet the Bible told us that. Told us that. Not not the day before, but hundreds and hundreds of years before. The Bible went on to tell us, uh, again, 400 years before, that Jesus would be betrayed the Messiah would be betrayed? That doesn't sound like much of a Messiah. When I think of a Messiah, I think of some political king coming in and taking charge. No, no. You read the scripture. The scripture told you that he would be betrayed. Then, it tells you even further. It says that the money that would be gained for the betrayal would be used to buy a potter's field. You know what a potter's field is? It's a field where they bury poor people. People that had no no identification, that didn't have any family. And so that's exactly what happened. When Judas Iscariot took the money and ultimately threw the money back into the the temple, uh, the priests took that money, they didn't want to keep it, and they used it to buy a potter's field. Prophecy. Again, hundreds of years before said that Jesus would be falsely accused. That was in Psalms. That he would be silent before his accusers, never speaking a word of his defense. That was in Isaiah. That he would be spat upon and struck in Isaiah. That, that, That he would be hated without cause. Again, Psalms. That he would be crucified with criminals. Now think about this. This is evidenced in Isaiah 53. That the Messiah would be crucified with criminals. Yet you know what happened. On either side of him, two criminals stood next to him. That he would be given vinegar to drink. Vinegar to drink. That's in Psalm 69. And you know when you study uh, the New Testament and you see the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you know that the Roman soldiers dipped the sponge in vinegar and gave Jesus the vinegar to drink. Uh, This is an amazing thing. In Zechariah, Again, hundreds of years before. It talks about the fact that Jesus' hands and feet would be pierced as he's put to death. Hands and feet pierced. Now, let's understand something, folks. Crucifixion would not be identified and created as a mechanism of death until about the year 250. And these prophecies are being given eight, 900 years before. There would be no reason to pierce the hands and feet of somebody who was being executed. Normally, you would just cut off their head or pierce them with a sword. And yet, you see here that God was making it clear. Look, I'm not telling you to take a leap in the dark. When you accept Christianity, you don't take a leap in the dark. You take a leap in the light over and over and over again. God has made it consistently clear as to who His Son is, that God Himself was Jesus Christ. How about this one? Psalm 22 says that the Messiah, when he dies, that, his, that soldiers would gamble for his garments. That's 800 years before Jesus would be crucified. And you know from reading the scripture that what happened at the bottom of the cross, at the foot of the cross, that the Roman soldiers themselves stood there and gambled for the garments of Jesus Christ. And then it says, going back to Exodus, and this is now 1400 years, 1400 years, that the Messiah, ultimately, the perfect Passover sacrifice, would not have any broken bones. Now think about this. Think about the fact that you're going to see one of the most horrific executions that you could possibly inflict on humanity. Crucifixion in which uh, spikes are driven through your, your wrists, and spikes are driven through your feet. And yet, the Bible told us that the Messiah would not have a single broken bone. Fact. Fact. Jesus expired on the cross without a single broken bone. And then it told us, in, in prophecies, uh, in Isaiah 53, that he would be buried with the rich. Buried with the rich? Wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. You just told me he would be crucified with criminals on either side. He didn't have any money. They actually took his garments and gambled over his garments. And yet the Bible says he's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb? Yes. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus was taken down from the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man, took the corpse and put Jesus in the tomb uh, that was uh, set aside for a wealthy man. And then ultimately, here's the thing. Here's the thing that separates this from every other religion in the world. This is what separates us. This is why we are who we are. And if this didn't happen, then we ought to give up. And I've wasted my life in going to church. I've wasted my life in teaching people about the Bible. And that is this, that Jesus... Christ was resurrected from the dead about three days after he would be crucified on the cross. Three days after they put him in the tomb, in the face of hundreds of witnesses, and I want to tell you that, hundreds of eyewitnesses, Jesus got up from that grave and walked out in front of hundreds of people. This wasn't an isolated event in secret. The last thing in the world was that they wanted him to walk away. They wanted that that, tomb uh, sealed, tight. And you know that the Jewish authorities compelled the Romans to to put a number of soldiers in front of that tomb, to seal that tomb, to put a seal on that rock, so that no way, nobody could get in there, none of the... Of the early Christians could get in in any way and affect that tomb. And despite all of those efforts, with all of those soldiers guarding that tomb, Jesus was resurrected, came back from the dead, and that's the essence of who we are as Christians. This is why I can speak to you today with the authority that I speak to you about, even though I'm just a simple lawyer, even though I'm not a minister. I can speak to you about this, because I know, I know that my Lord is God, that he was raised from the dead, that he sits on the right hand of God. And here's the thing that I want to say to you. The difference about us and about other religions is that it's very simple, very simple to become a Christian. You don't have to write a big check. You don't have to go to a fancy university. You don't have to read a set of treatises. Here's this thing. To become a Christian, all you have to do is accept Jesus Christ as your Lord to say, God, forgive me. I know that I cannot save myself. And when you do that, when you reach up out of the muck and mire of this world, this evil, sinful world, and you say that about God, God reaches down across eternity and accepts you. And when he accepts you, you are saved forever because Jesus died for you on the cross. When he died, when he was crucified, it's as if he had your name written on his hand. And that's the thing. We have a personal God. We have a personal relationship. Uh, and so, uh, as I speak to you about why I'm a Christian, why it empowers my life, why I believe that the world needs to understand this story, I hope it resonates with you. I hope it resonates with you. And and, and in so many ways, I hope it, it's uh, you begin to think about this, uh, because really... Uh, It's an important thing for you to know. It's the single most important thing you will ever do with your life. And now, as I close, and I'll give you some time for questions, I just want to read to you a poem. This is a poem entitled A Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles. From the place where he was born, he did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when he died. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Two thousand years have come and gone. And today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Thank you, and if you have any questions, I would be glad.